Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome to another episode of Boyer's Modern History. I'm Patrick Boyer. Each program in my series here on Hunters Bay Radio puts local topics and current events into their historical perspective to make them more comprehensible. My focus this year for each month's broadcast is the experience over thousands of years and since contact of First Nations connected with Muskoka. February's broadcast, for instance, was Indigenous Oral History Plays Vital Role Today. Now that generated a lot of listener interest about the importance and nature of oral tradition. Invitations came in for me to speak about Indigenous heritage to service clubs and community organizations, and write feature articles on First Nations for Muskoka periodicals. This makes clear a lot of people are quite interested in oral tradition. It also tells us what this month's topic should be. Going together with oral tradition, like a hand in a glove, is First Nation language. Without a language, no oral tradition could exist. You know, language is to us like water is to a fish. We are so completely immersed in our linguistic milieu that we are unaware of it. For instance, although this radio broadcast would not even be possible without language, We really do not think about that at all. I just write a script, speak it into this microphone, and you hear it on your receiver or read it on the Hunter's Bay website. Now that we're reminded just how vital language is, let's begin with the surprising number and linguistic diversity of indigenous languages. Peoples native to North, Central, and South America were speaking over a thousand known languages when Europeans began arriving. Some had millions of speakers, many just several hundred, while a very few had developed systems of writing for instance, the Mayans in the peninsula connecting North and South America uh, had a script. Most First Nation languages were only spoken, existing unwritten and therefore not visible. 
These various nations thrived for thousands of years with no written language. Their knowledge was passed from generation to generation orally by speaking, by repeating stories. Knowledge was held not in printed books, but in memory, the indispensable core of oral tradition. Both the oral tradition and these unwritten languages are a profound tribute to the power of the human brain and the uses First Nations made of it. Now, fast forward to present times. First Nation languages are in a dynamic state of flux, some vanishing, others revitalizing. But this itself is not new because we know that all living languages evolve. You know, when I when I studied French-Canadian literature at the Université de Montréal, for instance, we began with the first published poetry that appeared in a French-language newspaper founded in Montreal in 1778. The words were archaic compared to current usage. When I studied English literature at Carleton University, beginning with the medieval works of Geoffrey Chaucer, the old English in which he wrote the Canterbury Tales was incomprehensible. When I lived in the Netherlands, the Dutch language I learned to speak was contemporary, and Dutch books, even from the early 20th century, seemed almost a different language. So rapid is that language change and evolution. And certainly today, with English the most common world language, and with the internet contracting vocabulary, we see it changing before our very eyes. However, these linguistic evolutions in European-derived languages have never been so radical and transformative as what befell indigenous languages in North America. So let's return to those hundreds of First Nation languages. They, too, were constantly evolving on their own before European intervention. Communication depended on listening and speaking, but not seeing words. The oral tradition and the languages, languages that carried it required no orthographies, orthographies, the sets of rules uh, for writing a language, including spelling, hyphenation, capitalization, word breaks, emphasis, punctuation, you know, all the rules. Without those rules, indigenous languages kept evolving, as all spoken languages do, forming new words as needed. It was organic, natural, and it was taking place. One of the ways this happened, including forming new words, is described by Christopher Stock, a member of the Wata Mohawk community in Muskoka and consultant on indigenous culture. Long before arrival of the Europeans, he said, all the nations living in this area and beyond 
had significant trade agreements and partnerships. Those responsible for trading alliances had to learn the other's tongues and, in so doing, would have established a trade language understood by all parties. What radically changed indigenous languages was arrival of Europeans with an alien culture and their different languages. The Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, Dutch, Germans, and Russians down the Pacific coast each brought their own languages to the Americas. After a short station break, we'll see how that worked out. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer, and we're looking at Indigenous languages when non-Indigenous people arrived in the Americas. The European colonizers and the countries they created responded in dramatically different ways to Native American languages. In Spanish colonies, for instance, the new arrivals conquered Indigenous people by military force, while simultaneously their devout missionaries learned the native language so they could use it to preach in the locals' own tongue and convert them to Christianity. In one of Britain's American colonies, a Puritan missionary named John Eliot in Massachusetts translated the Bible into the Algonquian language in 1661. This was an early example of an indigenous Bible, someone fashioned by interpreting an unwritten language and transposing it into print. But Eliot's Bible and other works to follow showed the problem of conceptual and linguistic deviations from the spoken language. This, after all, is the universal challenge for all interpreters and translators who, like, uh, like light refracting through a prism, are really creating something else, something different and new. Previously to that, in uh, that work in Massachusetts in uh, 1661, here in Greater Muskoka during the mid-1620s, Joseph Le Caron, a Catholic Recollet priest living with the Wendat people inland from Lake Huron, produced the first Wendat French dictionary. You know, certainly a more helpful work for communication between the French colonizers and those interacting with them. The problem in this case was how the French were challenged to find letters in the alphabet to correspond with sounds they heard when someone spoke the native language. So they improvised ways that confused indigenous people ever since 
who learned their language seeing it written with various contorted letters of the alphabet. So we can begin to observe here a linguistic development altering First Nations speech with new departures and added complexities. Various versions of language, languages that had only been spoken were now being interpreted and transcribed into written European language versions, and vice versa. The Algonquin tongue spoken by the Massachusetts, the people John Eliot learned from, and whose identity is perpetuated in the state of Massachusetts' name, was just one among many branches of this umbrella language designated designation across the continent. Yet it became called by many the Algonquin Bible. This tendency to mislabel things became another source of confusion. And I hope this isn't getting confusing for you because it's a very complex field, actually. So let's press on. There was also the matter of doctrinal differences influencing interpretation. Eliot was a Protestant Puritan, Le Caron, a Catholic of the Recollet order. Add to this mix the fact those colonizers making such translations were using the Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, Dutch, German, and Russian languages. So the already complex and nuanced field of linguistics had become a demolition derby with all the contending intrusions. Those who brought their own languages to the Americas did more than create Bibles and dictionaries to bridge cultures. A classic example of this bizarre battle of words became the colonizers' land treaties for Indians to sign, written in non-Indigenous language, containing alien landholding concepts, explained to the chiefs orally by those keen to have them accept uh, the land treaty, even if they did not understand it, and then signed by the chiefs using an X or the animal sign of their clan to signify agreement a contract that would be thrown out of court today. However, contact and language change involved far more. While some colonists, like those missionaries, embraced a First Nation language and learned the culture of those who spoke it, other Europeans suppressed use of native tongues. By the 17 and 1800s, the Spanish, English, Portuguese, French, and Dutch settler societies had all made their respective languages the official one in their various European-style countries emerging in the Americas. Numerous indigenous languages became critically endangered, then many were lost because of their inferior non-official status. 
a particular attack on the integrity and viability of First Nations speech was colonist insistence that Indigenous children learn their European language at school. They escalated this process by removing children from their families and segregating them in residential schools. Re-education included punishment for speaking their own language. Reprogramming extended from long hair being shorn and native clothing being replaced by settler-style garments to eating only white people's food and never singing now-forbidden Indian songs. The brute force of this assimilation program included verbal abuse, physical beatings, incarceration, and sexual exploitation of these children. The abnormality of this wide-scale assimilation project is emphasized by the punctuation mark of concealed cemeteries beside schools. What other schools have graveyards for those attending them? Residential schools in Canada began in the early 1600s. Catholic nuns and priests established controlled environments for special education of a particular kind. By 1883, the government began funding their separate network of schools for Native children. In tandem, the Anglican and Methodist churches began operating Protestant residential schools with the same goal of reprogramming Indigenous youngsters in Christianity, but its Protestant versions, and in white ways, but in the English rather than French language. They, too, were funded with public money. From 1925, the Methodist operations were continued by the United Church of Canada, of which they now formed part, having united with two other Protestant denominations that year. Residential schools continued operating with their ongoing eradication of Indigenous languages and Native cultural practices until recently. The last closed in 1996, not 30 years ago. A legacy of this unregulated, one-sided, four-century run of full frontal assimilation was that suppression of Indigenous culture meant a decline in the number of people speaking First Nation languages. However, and despite everything, the size and resilience of larger First Nation populations enabled many Indigenous languages to survive and for them to remain part of daily life for millions of Native people. Strength in numbers. The most spoken Native language in what became the United States is Navajo with over 200,000 speakers today in the American Southwest. 
pointedly, governments who cleared Indians from their land also cherry-picked advantages that suited them. In the World Wars, the U.S. military enlisted Navajo men as code talkers to transmit secret messages by speaking their own language nobody else, especially the enemy, understood. In Canada, spoken indigenous languages include Cree, Ojibwe, Inuktitut, Mohawk, Seneca, Oneida, Cayuga, Onondaga, and dozens, dozens more. Here we encounter serious complexities. Because the full list of First Nation languages for our country is so much longer than those few examples I just gave. And due to similarities between native tongues on account of intermarriage, migrations, and trade, non-Indigenous linguists and anthropologists began grouping them according to their own selected criteria, fields of academic scholarship, and varying classifications, sometimes with three or four different names for the same thing. The dilemma this created, especially for Indigenous people seeking to reclaim and revitalize their ancient languages, is what Christopher Stock characterizes as, quote, the mass confusion of the different interpretations of the French and English people who tried to recreate our languages in their understanding, to compartmentalize our languages and our affiliations into abstracted models of identification. And their imaginary time-fixed boundary lines drawn around our migrating linguistic communities. Close quote. In Muskoka, the two principal linguistic groups of recent eras are Algonquian and Iroquois, specifically Ojibwe and Potawatomi people of the Algonquian linguistic family and Mohawks of the Iroquois language community. Today, much is dynamic with First Nations concerning identity and cultural integrity, and the great awakening across Canada to the real experience of descendants of this land's original people. Pivotal to this is the presence and role of Indigenous language. In another program, we will focus specifically on how this dynamic process is changing First Nation realities in Muskoka. Thank you for listening to another episode of Warriors Modern History of Muskoka. Producing this broadcast here at Hunters Bay Radio is Matt Fisher, a man of Ojibwe heritage himself, whom I salute for helping me get these words to you over the airwaves. I'm Patrick Boyer.